Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's July 1st, 1946. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. By 1946, the British Empire was firmly on the decline and starting to cede its territories to independence. So it was quite unusual on this day that the empire gained a new colony. But the Kingdom of Sarawak wasn't being wrested from indigenous rulers, but from a Devonshire family who had ruled it as a personal fiefdom for over 100 years. I didn't realise that Britain had made a colonial acquisition as recent as post-war. I didn't realise that at any point in history a British citizen had been recognised as the absolute sovereign ruler of a foreign territory. So James Brooke arrived in what is today Sarawak in 1838 to challenge the Dutch in southern Borneo, and he found the region under siege from piracy. And Brooke, who was the son of an English judge in the East India Company and a veteran of the British conquest of Burma, he crushed this rebellion and put a stop to the ongoing piracy, largely through a combination of the superior weaponry he had at hand and also some not insignificant personal military ability. He was sort of a one-man army. He'd actually been in the Bengal army. He'd apparently suffered a wound to a place too delicate for Victorians to mention. <laughs> Which meant he never fathered any children and, and then went on to establish a male hierarchical absolute monarchy. You do wonder if he was compensating for something. So he'd had this long recovery in Britain and when he returned to India, his regiment had already gone and he had to resign his commission. Then his father died and left him £30,000 and unlike most people who would probably spend it on a house deposit or a holiday, he used it to buy a 142-ton schooner, <laughs> man it with a crew and sail it to the Malay Peninsula, which is how he ended up in Sarawak. At the invitation of nobody. No one asked him to do this. <laughs> Not Queen Victoria, nobody. Yeah, because Borneo was technically ruled by the Sultan of Brunei, but it was a very fractious, kind of a troublesome part of the kingdom for him. And it seemed like he was actually more than happy to offload some of it to James Brooke. But one of the reasons that it's given that the Sultan of Brunei was so happy to give up this place is that it was home to these notorious headhunting indigenous tribes. And so, at least in some uh, accounts of the story, he was like, well, this is too difficult to rule over. And so I'll just hand it off to this white guy. Yes. And of course, those uh, indigenous people were far too lazy to write a thorough account of their... uh escapades in English, justifying all of their religious sacrifices. <laughs> if only they had. So in any case, James Brooke then takes control as the first white Raja. This is in 1841. And some of his first acts are to try to crack down uh, in a military slash police kind of way on these indigenous Dayak communities. You can see how he already had the idea that he was going to rule with an iron fist. To be fair, the detail of them handing each other human skulls at ceremonies is true. That's pretty fearsome, isn't it? Absolutely, but he also immediately appointed himself as the judge. So he wanted to be front and centre in the judgment of any crimes that happened within his territory. And the early court session happened in the front room of his house, which was just a sort of like plank and thatch kind of simple affair, with with him with his pet orangutan Betsy running around in the background. And he <laughs> had these legal proceedings, which for many locals, apparently the main draw became the opportunity to place 
bets on the fate of those who <laughs> were standing trial. I don't know why you're ridiculing him, Arian. You know, he's the son of a judge. He'd been to the right school. He'd worked for the East <laughs> India Company. What's a fella got to do? Well, this He's got all the qualifications yeah. you need. Brooke was actually investigated by a commission of inquiry set up by the British in Singapore in 1854. There, there were allegations that he was excessively brutal towards the native people. The charges were dismissed, but this, you know, the spectre of it did hang over him. But despite this, he did, you know, for obviously it's all within the context of the time. But he did show understanding of the fact that Sarawak had this mixed population. You had Malays, you had Chinese, and these indigenous people of Borneo as well. So in 1867, he created this Supreme Council made up of representatives of the different groups to sort of help him pass and balance all those competing interests. And although he did ban headhunting, he did allow it on expeditions authorised by him. Hmm. So it was another way of sort of securing the loyalty of those people. Instead of coming in with this white saviour attitude and saying, I'm banning all of these things because they're completely against my religion and my culture, he only authorised them on his own expeditions. Just on that question of where he was shot, though, I found an excerpt from a book called Empire and Sexuality by a guy called Ronald Hyam. And he said that it's possible that the story about James Brooks' emasculation may have been to kind of obscure the fact that he wasn't interested in women. And one of the pieces of evidence that he cites is that Brooke had a close uh, personal attachment to Badruddin, who was a Sarawak prince. So he was known to have relationships with other men that potentially crossed the bounds. It may have been, in fact, according to Hayam, that he was shot actually in the lung because he had actually had an illegitimate son at some point who he failed to acknowledge, and that's why he didn't hand his empire over to him. But, you know, it was a convenient thing to say that the gunshot went not through my lung but <laughs> through my you know nethers um, and that is why I am therefore handing it over to this chap. So it was his sister's son Charles who became the next white Raja in the dynasty and he uh, abolished slavery, he built roads and waterworks and a railway all very Victorian but he also extended the boundaries of the land under his control until it was the size of England. Yeah. <laughs> yeah at its peak Sarawak had 500,000 subjects and covered 40,000 square miles. So it was pretty big. The other thing that was going on, though, you can see this sort of line of eccentricity that's mm. getting deeper and deeper as the Brook line continues. So James Brook, I feel, falls into, like, the mildly eccentric Victorian adventurer mould. Charles was starting to go a little bit strange. <laughs> he lost his eye in a hunting accident and replaced it with a glass one that he took from a stuffed albatross. There aren't many glass eye manufacturers in Sarawak. <laughs> I felt like he could have got one if he wanted it, though. Yeah. Here's another one, though, Ollie. He had, he had his two sons, Charles Viner and Bertram, who would succeed him. He forbade them to eat jam because he deemed it effeminate. He also served his wife a pie that was made from her pet doves. And she once commented, that Charles is something of a queer fish, which just seems like a massive <laughs> understatement considering what he was up to. And one of those boys who was uh, never allowed to eat jam became the next Raja, Sir Charles Viner. <laughs> yes, Charles Viner Brook. So he was married to this woman, Sylvia, and they had three daughters, and they were all very eccentric and bohemian. The, the mad streak was pretty strong by this point. Keep in mind, they've been living basically in a bubble of their own personal fiefdom. Yeah, we know an awful lot about Viner's sex life as well. In the words of his wife, he was not good in bed, and she <laughs> said, he made love just as he played golf in a nervous, unimaginative <laughs> flurry. <laughs> but by this stage, they'd really just become massive tabloid 
fodder. And they'd also become the butt of music hall jokes. The main joke was that both parties in the relationship was were known to shag pretty much everything that moved. But he was knighted. He was Sir Charles Viner. And in fact, so was James Brooke knighted by Queen Victoria. He was sort of hailed as a hero in Britain at the time for going off and getting this new part of it wasn't the empire but this sense that maybe it was affiliated with the empire and doing british things but i think also the fact that this was such a great distance from britain contributed to viner's increasing loss of interest in the day-to-day business of government in what was his kingdom and so at this stage you start to get the emergence of his nephew anthony who starts to take over the family firm and at one point in 1939 during one of viner's annual visits to england for flat racing season um the then 23 year old heir apparent was left in charge of the country for six months but it turns out that he doesn't get to rule for very much longer than that at all yeah in 1946 charles viner basically sold the kingdom to to britain for £200,000 for his personal use, making it the British Empire's final acquisition. And Sarawak would go on to be part of the new Federation of Malaysia. But meanwhile, you've got this picture of like, what do they do? Obviously, they have plenty of money and they spent plenty of time in England anyway. But it is a kind of a sad picture. Sylvia, Charles Vinder's wife, later spoke of the necessity of adjusting to a world in which we were no longer emperors, but merely two ordinary ageing people, two misfits in the changing pattern of modern times. Mm. You think that must be very hard to adapt to. A very unique situation. And also, Anthony Brooke was not consulted about the land being turned over to Britain, and he resisted it. And you could see like the way history was moving in 1946, how if you were Sarawak National, you'd think being part of the British Empire doesn't feel like the best step for us to be taking. I mean, I know the kingdom we have is very weird, but at least it's not, you know, it's not part of this ailing empire. But Anthony billed himself as ambassador at large for the people of the world and began travelling around the world campaigning for peace. And this put quite a lot of strain on his marriage and eventually he and his wife separated, not least because he got increasingly bizarre. And at one point he joined a New Age commune in northeast Scotland and adopted the belief, basically, that flying saucers would one day bring peace on earth and to the brotherhood of man. I am really starting to think that Charles Viner should have just let them all eat jam. <laughs> <laughs> he certainly didn't suppress the queer fish vibes, did he? <laughs> Next time. To be fair, who would have thought of recording the moment they first ate a beef patty inside a bread roll? <laughs> Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.